All right, everybody. Guess which gospel we're studying today? <laughs> yeah, we're in John chapter 4. This is actually a pretty wonderful chapter all the way through. So we started looking at John 4 a couple of weeks ago. And I said that the theme of the chapter actually is missions. We just haven't talked about that at all <laughs> so far. Um, so we've been in it for actually two weeks. But um, today we're going to talk about it. But first I just, we, I felt like we really needed to cover that full conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well and really dig into that. So that's what we did. And then last week I felt I needed to spend time with Jesus teaching on the nature of God and, and what true worship is. And that was an important text. So in verse 23 and 24 there. But now we can continue and finish the tale of the woman at the well and all the things that happened around that. So we, we, uh, we never made it to her experience when she left Jesus and went back into town. Sikar, this little um, Samaritan village. So Jesus had just revealed to her, remember that He's the Messiah. He told her that. The long expected one. And at that very moment the disciples arrived back from buying groceries in town. You remember? So um, it kind of interrupted everything there. And uh, when they arrived the disciples are stunned that he's actually talking with a woman for one thing alone. But they didn't interrupt him. They knew that he knew what he was doing. So they left him alone about that. But verse 27 it says at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And no one said what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman though uh, uh, on hearing Jesus say he was the Messiah she's excited. She's thrilled. The, the disciples are kind of curious but she's thrilled. So she leaves her water jar there and she runs back to town. And Jesus had already shown her that he had detailed knowledge about her life even though he was a complete stranger to her and never been near that town before. And so she was sure he was a prophet right? That was what her conclusion was. But when Jesus told her that he was the Messiah. Because she said. She said I know that Messiah will come one day. And he said I who speak to you am he. Which is just great. So she goes off to town. Verse 28. The woman left her water pot. Went into the city and said to the men. So now we're picking up the story. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ is it? So she couldn't wait to tell people about Jesus. And she had a past, right? She's not like the most virtuous woman in the world. Uh, but that doesn't stop her here. It's kind of impressive, this whole thing. She's eager to share. The Messiah is at Jacob's well. You should all go see him. That's what she was telling the people there. So I, I like how she presents the news too. She doesn't say, I found the Messiah, let's go. That's not how she does it. She asks a question based on, well, not based on Jesus' claim that he's the Messiah because he said he was to her. She doesn't say, mention that but she presents him to the community based on what she knows and what she knows is that he knew all about her life without that even being possible. So she says come see a man that told me all the things that I have done. And then she asked the question this is not the Christ is he? So she's creating a curiosity and interest by her question. So I don't know if she really was asking the question like is he? What do you think? I, I don't think that's it. I actually think this is a strategic thing on her part um, to get them to come see him. I, I think that it was intentional that way. A strategy if you will. That way she's not claiming he was the Messiah but raising the question and letting them see it for themselves. So I think that's what she's doing here. Get the folks out. And so that works. 
um, verse 30, they went out of the city and were coming to him. So whatever she wanted to do, she did it and succeeded. So they're, they're all starting to walk out of town towards where Christ is by the well, Jacob's well, very famous place for thousands of years actually. So I got to say something here about the 12 disciples. So Jesus had these chosen men, right? And it's still early. They've been together for weeks, not months or years. It's been a number of weeks now, but um, the 12, right? It might not even be 12 at this point. There could be fewer than that. He hasn't picked them all up yet, possibly. But the men who will be preaching all over Israel are with him, and they're the ones that went into town, Sikart, this village, to get groceries or get food for them to have a meal with, right? And what did they bring back from the town? Food. Okay, keep that in mind. It's important. While they were in town, while they were there, did they tell any of the Samaritans that the Messiah was at Jacob's well? No. They didn't say a word about it. Did they say the Son of God was just outside town? No, they didn't do that. Did they even tell about how Jesus had cast the money changers out of the temple at Passover in Jerusalem in the great temple? Did they tell them about that story and that he healed people there? No, they didn't say a word about it. Did they say, hey everyone, the kingdom of God is at hand and the king is here? No, they, they didn't do that. Did they say, we were followers of John the Baptist and now we're following Jesus because Jesus, John told us to follow Jesus. Did they say that? Because everybody knew who John the Baptist was. No, no, they didn't say that. They, they didn't say that. They didn't say any of that, apparently. Doesn't appear that they did. They did buy some food in the marketplace so they were around a lot of people and they didn't say anything about that. Now why didn't they? Why didn't they? Is it because of what the Samaritan woman said to Jesus at the beginning of their conversation early in the chapter where she said Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans? Was it that? It could have been that. Or were they just concerned first and foremost with getting a good lunch? My guess is it actually never crossed their minds to say all that stuff. Maybe because they were Samaritans, but maybe they were just doing other things instead. So, for Jesus, it's time for a lesson for the twelve. So John, now our John, the guy that wrote this book here, he's one of the twelve and he was there. So now he's taking us from what happened in the town with the woman going back to where he is. Um, back at the well, meanwhile back at the well, that's that kind of, it actually writes the story kind of that way. The disciples have put out their spread, they got their food all together, they buttered their bread or whatever they're doing so they can eat bread, vegetables, maybe a little honey in those days, that's the kind of thing they probably eat. But they notice something after they spread it all out and they're sitting there together and they're eating, Jesus isn't eating. And Jesus was exhausted, that's why he waited at the well, he sat down at the well and that's why he asked the woman for a drink. Actually, I think he was doing more asking her, but that was, he was thirsty. It says that. Wasn't he hungry? I mean, he was exhausted, so why didn't he eat? They're all hungry, but he's not. So verse 31 says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. That's like a Jewish grandmother. Eat, eat. <laughs> You're so skinny. I have found food to eat that you do not know about, he says. Verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So he's just sitting there, they're all eating, and Rabbi, eat. I have food to eat. Food you don't know about. And of course, right away they're thinking, like literally, like, 
oh, uh, where'd you get it? Uh, did somebody bring you something or whatever. But in, in, in just the same way that he used water to talk to the woman at the well about salvation, he's using food to talk to the disciples about their job, their job being his disciples. So he's using these common things. So he says, I have food to eat you don't know about. And they all stop and go, what? Verse 33, so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And having their attention then, Jesus tells them about, he tells them about himself, about what drives him, about what motivates him. Uh, And if you want to think in terms of food, what satisfies him, you know, what, what his necessary food would be, what nourishes him, what pleases him. So verse 34, classic text, one of the most important in the gospel there. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So he waited for them to notice he wasn't eating so he could tell them about the real food, his food, the thing that he craves the most, the thing that he desires the most. He hasn't eaten anything. But his food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent him, to do God's will. So now, of course, Jesus eats normally, but that he wanted to bring this lesson out. I mean, he's a human being. He has to nourish his body. I'm sure he enjoyed a good meal like anybody would, something tasty. But while food is an absolute necessity to sustain your life and it's usually the first thing people think about you know getting something to eat if they're hungry that's kind of dominates their mind Jesus is saying to them there's higher things to take care of more satisfying things than just eating a good meal when you're hungry so you know you know what I think of some of you are new around here. Uh, a f- few years ago, we lost a beloved brother. The building next door here is named after him, Mel Abel. Nobody loved food more than Mel, right? You guys that knew Mel. And if he found a new restaurant, he took you there. And he paid for it because he wanted you to experience whatever the meal was, right? And he made incredible tri-tip for various church events and all that kind of stuff. He was best tri-tip around. The man loved food. But he loved Jesus more. In fact, he loved Jesus much more. And he loved his church more. And he was a faithful elder here for many, many years. And he loved sharing the gospel with people more than food. And he shared it with all of his neighbors. He shared Christ with all of his neighbors. He invited people here all the time. That's what he did. He did it more than I do. He was constantly evangelizing, constantly sharing the Lord. His satisfaction, his necessary food was to do the will of his father and share Christ with people. That, that was a really important thing to him. He, he was always on the lookout for that. And he would just start conversations and he was so charming. He could be in anywhere where Mel was and he would win people over right away. And um, people listened to him. So Jesus is telling them to shift their priorities and elevate something else above the food priority. So they were probably all focused on getting food when they went to town. It's not that they were trying to do anything wrong or ignore, but he's saying, he's saying, think about your going through your life and the ways you can, I mean, their job is going to be to preach the kingdom gospel. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And here they had this opportunity and didn't take it. But somebody did, and who did it? That wicked Samaritan woman, she, she shared with the town when they weren't doing it. So that's kind of where this is all going. So the food, your food is the most essential thing I think I have to take care of. And he's saying, for me, 
that most essential thing is doing the will of God. And he says that's what it's got to be for you. That's what he's encouraging to do. So yeah, they need to eat, but their highest priority needs to be bringing the message of Christ to the people of Israel and not ignoring the Samaritans, if that was intentional on their part, to not ignore them. So in verse 35, Jesus repeats to them, so this is a little bit tricky here because it just sort of says something out of the blue it seems like but it's probably part of their conversation. So they're having a meal, they're sitting there and there's probably fields around and these guys a lot, some of them were farmers and this and that and know about that stuff. So somebody mentions that um, in four months this, the crops will be ready. They're not, people, they don't go ever go through Samaria, it's a new town for them. So they're looking around, they're talking about it. So. Um, But some people think what Jesus is saying here in verse 35 is a proverb. And it can be written like that in your Bible. Translations do it different ways. So I just have to explain that a little bit. So he's, um, he says, verse 35, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. So some people think Jesus is saying, don't you guys, isn't there a proverb that says there are four months and then comes the harvest? That, that might be what he's doing. Or it might be their conversation and he's hearing them say in four months there's the harvest. Okay, that's just kind of leading you into this whole thing. If, um, so some translations will translate it, do you not have a saying? Which is not exactly, uh, exactly what the words say, but that could be what the words mean. So diff- your translation might be a little bit different depending, you know, we've probably got ten translations of the New Testament in here. So just trying to roll with that so I don't confuse anybody. But, um, that, and if, if it's a proverb, then the word saying is a verb being used as a noun, which is a call, called a gerund, right? Is that what they call it, a gerund? It's a, it's a grammatical kind of an idea. But um, I ask a teacher, you know, right there, it's in the front row. So, um, now Jesus actually is going to refer to a proverb right after this in a minute or so, but... Um, in my view, that's not what he's doing. I, I, I don't think so for several reasons. For one thing, the word saying is a present tense verb, which means this ongoing thing that's happening. It's also probably December in this story, and the crop would not be, um, uh, the crop actually would be four months away, if that's true. And uh, crops actually take like six months, so um, there in Israel. So I- if it's four months away, that probably is actually the situation going on. It wouldn't be a proverb necessarily. Also, he uses the word yet or still, which isn't in all of your translations, but that actually is the word in the Greek text, and, and you wouldn't put that in a proverb. It, there are yet four months to the harvest. That's usually not the way you would write a proverb. So I don't think it is a proverb. I think he's hearing them talk about the harvest, and he's bringing that up. So lay all that aside. Don't worry about it. It doesn't really make a big difference, but proverb or not, what they're talking about or the proverb says you have to wait for the harvest, right? You sow and then you wait so many months and then you harvest, right? So here's Jesus' point. They don't have to wait. They should not have to wait. So back at verse 35 there, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. So he's saying if you look up and look. Now if they're talking about the fields being at this four months away harvest thing. He's not talking about crops. He's not talking about plants. He's not talking about that. He's saying guys the harvest is right now. It's time to get out there and start harvesting. You understand what I'm saying? Okay good. If you don't just don't say anything because I'll feel bad. No I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
No, he's saying the fields are ripe. You, you need to be about the Father's business. And the Father's business is harvesting souls into his kingdom, bringing people in. Bringing in the sheaves, as that old song says, right? So, that, doing the Father's business has to be your nourishment. I mean, you eat for nourishment, but you labor for men, for, for human beings. He says that's what needs to take the priority. Not only should they be in the fields reaping, but other people have already started doing it. Verse 36 says, already, Jesus says, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. Now he really is quoting a proverb. And, he does, and that word saying is a completely different word. It's the word lagos, the word. It's, you, you have a word. That, that actually is a proverb. So he's saying that. You have a proverb. One sows and another reaps. That's a really important idea I want to develop a little bit here. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. You didn't do the sowing. But I want you to go out there and reap, right? Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So their calling is to build on what others have already done. So there's a lot here in these few verses here. But the ideas are pretty simple. And again, they have nothing to do with farming. They're about God's work, right? So he's talking about spiritual sowing and spiritual reaping. And it's not some weird esoteric cosmic sort of thing he's talking about here. He's just referring to God bringing souls into his kingdom that are going to live with him forever and eternity and be glorified. So it's a sowing it is sowing the message that leads to eternal life in Christ. That leads to reaping. And the reaping as people, is people c committing themselves to Christ as their Lord and Savior. So it's eternal souls. Now this is Paul, Paul language. The Apostle Paul language from Colossians chapter 1. This is eternal souls moving from. Paul's words are the domain of darkness. And being transferred to the kingdom of his dear son. So that's what we're talking about here. That movement. That great transformation. So you can see in verse 36 that sowers and reapers may not be the same person. Right? Sometimes they are but sometimes they're not. But what do they do? They rejoice together he says. The sower and the reaper because they care about people having eternal life. Not getting any kind of credit for it. They just want to see it happen. So some are sowing. Sometimes people reap. And uh, sometimes they reap much later. Probably the simplest and most obvious example is if a parent raises their child to believe in Christ they raise them in the church they model Christianity at their home they they uh, lived out their faith they modeled and taught the scriptures what, what is that well that's sowing into your children right that's sowing that's sending them truth giving them truth about who God is and what Jesus did for them and sometimes of course kids grow up and they kind of walk away they abandon the faith or um, say you know I, I don't really believe this and the, the world and the culture and all of that stuff kind of takes over and um, they, they walk away but sometimes those same kids meet somebody else a faithful Christian maybe at college uh, somebody that lives a, a, a godly life maybe on a job somewhere they meet another Christian somewhere and they're more ready maybe they've been through the hard knocks of life they've sinned and they actually feel a sense of their own guilt for that maybe when they're 90 years old and they're in a nursing home somebody will come along and talk to them about the Lord that they abandoned 80 years ago or 70 years ago right that kind of thing happens 
all the time. All the time. Somebody shares the gospel with them somewhere along the way and it just suddenly clicks. That's, that person is reaping what parents have sown all through their childhood. So that does happen. So in those situations the parents are the sowers and somebody else is the reaper. But both are going to rejoice forever. In fact the parents might be there in heaven while the reaping is being done on earth for their child. You know the prayers of a mother are pretty powerful. That's been proven time and time again. So praying for your kids you know when they wander off. Other people can sow too. It's not just parents. My wife's parents did not sow. They hated Christ. They were against him. They um, didn't want anything to do with it. A neighbor came and said can I take your kids to church with me? And her mom thought well a little religion is good for you. <laughs> right? So this neighbor consistently regularly took her to church all those years. That's sowing. I mean to actually have the courage and the love to go to somebody else and say may I take your kids to church. I know you guys don't want to go but I, I, I you know but you probably, they probably invited them too and they said no. Could I take your children to Sunday school? But that, that, I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. You can. And they did it consistently for a long time. Well, she became a Christian. She's still the only Christian in her family. And she comes home and says, I accepted the Lord. And they go, what? We don't want you to get serious about this whole thing. And then she wanted to go to a Christian college. And they're like, what? Well, you're going to pay for it yourself. We're not doing anything. And God provided everything for her. It's like a, an amazing thing. Sewing. Sewing. Just having the kindness and the courage to reach out a little bit farther. That's what Mel would do all the time. Sew and sew with his neighbors all the time. So you might sew and another sew and another sew. And then someday somebody's going to reap. You never know how it's going to work. But we should all be sewing all the way along in other people's lives. It might not happen with us. But it might happen with somebody else farther down the line. And they'll reap. But the sower and the reaper in heaven will rejoice together, right? Because of this wonderful thing that God did through our faithfulness with all that. So Jesus says it's a true saying. One sows and another reaps. It's a cooperative venture. So there's no, there's no tension there between the sower and the reaper. We're all happy about that happening, you know. Paul in the 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know the Corinthian church was a mess, right? And it was divided into factions. And everybody had their favorite preacher, right? There was a Paul group and a Peter group and an Apollos group. And then, of course, there's the, we're the Christ group, right? So, and Paul chastises them that for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, When one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants. Through whom you believed, he says. That's who we are. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. We had our opportunities. We took them. And some of you grew under my ministry. Some of you grew under Apollos' ministry. Some of you came to Christ when Peter came through and preached a sermon to you. That's, we're, we're all in the same work. We're all servants of the same master, he's saying. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. 
but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The sower is going to get an award, a reward and the reaper is going to get a reward. God blesses the faithful. He rewards the faithful. For we are God's fellow workers. He says you are God's field. God's building. And they're building the building or they're working the field. Everyone, whatever analogy you want to use. He says we're just servants. And we all work in this together. So um, who cares right? Who gets the credit for that? Because God will reward everybody along the way. All rejoice together as people find eternal life in Christ. There's no competition. Laura and I were talking this morning about, um, so if you were here for in the 90s, <laughs> in like the mid 90s, there was a guy in our church named Gary. Gary and Donna, wonderful couple. She was a believer, he was not a believer. He loved coming and he participated in stuff and we needed a big cross built for something we were doing and he, I'll make that for you. He was all involved. I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian. I'd, I don't believe. But he was always coming. He was always involved. And he called me Wayno. That was, that was, so, so for several years, I had that nickname Wayno instead of, you know, I should be called Most Right Reverend Wilson, but he called me, he called me Wayno. But um, that stuck for a while. Fortunately, they moved to Tennessee. But just for my namesake. But what, here's what happened though. Laura especially was always working on Gary to get him to come to the Lord, you know. And uh, she was sewing all the time with him. And he kind of liked her. So they were sewing. I mean, he liked her in a brotherly way. It was really a good relationship. And they were, she was sewing into him. And then they moved to Tennessee. And guess what? They started going to church in Tennessee and he got saved. Like, like, like months later, like right away. And they're still there. And that was the first family to abandon us for Tennessee. You can't, you <laughs> can't do that anymore. But um, that was a long time ago. But he actually did come to the Lord. And uh, so the sower and whatever pastor or person on the other end, the reaper, like, wow, this guy just came to the Lord. Well, she was sowing all that time. So were a lot of us. But, um, you know, the Lord just had his own timing. And everybody's going to be rejoicing in heaven with Gary and, and his wife, you know. And uh, so it was really an exciting thing. Now, in verse 36, Jesus said, anyone who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. Already he who reaps is receiving wages, he says. So it, the, the payment is already going on. God is already crediting you with, with that kind of work. So now, so now the disciples have been with Jesus for, for weeks and they have already seen Jesus sowing. They saw him sowing in the temple. He threw out the money changers. He preached there during the whole Passover time. They were afraid to do anything with him and he was healing people, doing all this stuff that Jesus does. They heard him preach in Judea. It says in chapter 3 verse 22 that the disciples were helping him baptize people and so obviously that came along with sermons and everything. And I think Jesus is talking about, I think Jesus is talking about this day. Now he might be talking about more than this day but I think he's talking about Jacob's well day. Um, while they were getting groceries and not saying anything. While they were eating lunch. It was already happening. Look at verse 38 again. He says, I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So the obvious question here is, who has labored before the apostles are sent in to reap, right? And you could take it all the way back to Moses, I suppose. And, and all the work that God had done over the years and all the prophets that suffered and um, gave us all the promises of the Messiah coming in the Old Testament. You could call those people the, um, the preparers and the people whose work they're in, entering into. Certainly John the Baptist would be on that list, the latest and the prophet that was still alive when this was going on, um, still ministering. And they, they were, a lot of these guys were his disciples. 
So John the Baptist was a well-known sower and prepared the way for Jesus and some of Jesus men had labored with him so they would understand what he's talking about. These guys did all this work leading up to now and it's now time for you to go into the harvest but I don't think we can leave out this very day. This very day. Jesus himself sowed uh, to that woman by asking her for a drink of water. It was a great way to start a conversation. He was actually thirsty but it started a conversation right? And so um, by engaging in a conversation with her, um, he led her to this wonderful place where she ended up. And at the very moment, I think at the very moment Jesus is saying these things, and because of that lady's words, many townspeople were coming. So I think Jesus probably could actually see them coming when he's talking about this. So she actually did the labor in this particular case. Look how John tells this in verse 39. He says, from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Right? Why did they believe in him? According to the text, verse 39, why did they believe in Jesus? Because of the word of the woman, it says right there. So let's think about that for just a second here. We don't know much about this town. It's a Samaritan town. Samaritan culture. They were religious people. I think as we've talked about before we can safely assume that her past life and her current living situation um, she was not a person that would be welcome in polite society. She was on the outskirts um, looked down on but she didn't let that stop her. She went into town and just started telling everybody in the marketplace or that was out you know. The, this guy told me all about my life. He couldn't be the Messiah could he? The Christ could he? She had, she had wonderful news to tell about this man. And she apparently thought Jesus was so wonderful that she didn't let any bitterness against anybody that might look down on her. She's just telling everybody in town. There's a whole crowd coming out from the town. And by the way, that is the correct attitude of the sinner that comes to Christ, of which we are all sinners when we come to Christ. Yes, I have been a fool. I've been a sinner. I don't deserve honor and respect from anyone. But I met somebody named Jesus and he's changed my life. I'm a new person now. I'm a new person. I was saved by grace, not by my merits. And God's grace changed me and I just want you to know about my Savior. That's the right attitude. That's her attitude. She was God's instrument literally that day. And John goes out of the way to say because of the words of the woman they believed. So imagine Jesus words now in verse 35 back up a little bit. Imagine him seeing the crowd in a distance starting to come towards them while they're sitting there having their lunch. Actually seeing them. Imagine his words there in verse 35 as the crowds coming in. And I think John designs the story because he starts with her in the town then tells the lunch story and then he ends with them coming and arriving there at the crowd. So in the middle there they're eating lunch. Jesus isn't eating. The disciples say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then he says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're coming. The harvest is ripe. Lift up your eyes. They are white for the harvest. And here they come. And I think that's why John told us 
They went out of the city. They're already on the way. Before he tells us this conversation Jesus has about sowing and reaping. They're already on the way. So Jesus might well be seeing them coming when he says that. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They are white for harvest. In other words the fields are ready now. You didn't do much about it. She did everything. But now they're coming so let's reap. Let's reap together. She's sowing. You can reap. Now can you guess how Jesus felt emotionally when he saw the crowd coming? Happy. (laughs) Satisfied. Like he'd had a good meal. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When he saw what she achieved and the people were coming, I know he felt good about that. The Father's will was being accomplished and Jesus wanted his disciples to have that same attitude, that same dedication. So verse 39 really introduces us to the harvest. From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. And it gets better. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. That's a complete understanding of who he is. Two days with Jesus. Can you imagine having two days with Jesus? So these people who worshiped on the wrong mountain, who rejected the prophets except for Moses, only believed in Moses, they got two days with Jesus. And at the end of those two days, many believed in Jesus as the savior of the world. And here, through the words of the Samaritans, John gives Jesus a new title. So in his gospel, this is the first time he calls Jesus the savior of the world. So that's new language. You've noticed as our study has been going along, he keeps adding titles and descriptions of who Jesus is. Way back in chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God. In verse 2, the word The word created everything. In verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. And verse 29 of chapter 1. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist says. And in verse 34 of chapter 1. He's the son of God. And chapter 3 verse 16. He's the only begotten son. And verse 18 of chapter 3. He's the only begotten God. He calls him. The one and only. And now he's the savior of the world. So John's building this understanding of who Jesus is. With this extra title. This beautiful fitting title. Especially coming from the lips of Samaritans. Because they're part of the world. The outside the chosen people world. So a great thing happened in town on that day. And you know why? Why did a great thing happen? Because of this woman. Who started sowing. And the reaping that followed. It is my food to do the will of God. So if that's true, then the question is, what is God's will? Well, God calls us to do a lot of different things. There's a lot of things we can do to serve him, many ways to serve him. But obviously, the greatest thing we can do is to let people know about the Savior he sent into the world. That's obviously the most important thing. Make Christ known, like the Samaritan woman made him known. She didn't know anything. She didn't have a theological degree. Well, I can't share Christ. I never went to seminary. Well, come on. (laughs) 
You know he died for your sins. You know he's the savior of the world. You know he's the greatest man that ever lived. You know, to, you know he's God in human flesh. You know plenty to tell people. You don't have to have a degree to do that. You don't have to go to, to an evangelism class. You know what you need to do, really? Let me just spend two minutes on this and we'll be done. But first know the gospel for yourself. What is the, go- what is the good news? You, know, you want to get that down. Learn how to explain it. Learn how to show somebody actually in the Bible. I was, you know, Saul's teaching in Galatians this morning over there. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 or 5. It's like just the very beginning. And Paul describes the gospel right in those first few verses. That Christ died for our sins. I mean, it was all right there. So learn places in the Bible where you can do that. Second thing is to be a godly example. Be kind, be mature, be humble, be honorable. Love people where they are. Then pray. It should be a part of your regular prayer life. Lord, I'm open to you leading me. Let me be an instrument of your grace to other people. Just make that a regular thing. Open opportunities for me. Um, And then kind of follow what Jesus did. You know, may I have some water? That started a whole conversation. <laughs> learn, to ha- learn to incorporate your faith in normal conversations. You don't have to be beating everybody up all the time. And stopping them on the street and getting in their face about that. That's fine if you want to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But just include it in natural conversations. People that already know you. I mean it's easy for me. They say what do you do? I'm a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> that in itself can lead to sowing. Just that knowledge. But let's see somebody says what did you do this weekend? I went to uh, the beach this weekend. What did you do? You know? Instead of saying nothing, you could say, I learned something kind of interesting from the Gospel of John that I didn't know before. The Gospel of John, what's that? Oh, that's one of the books in the Bible that tells you all about who Jesus is. That's a totally normal conversation. It's not threatening. It's just, yeah. You're suddenly right there, right? The Gospel of John is one of the books in the Bible that explains so much about who Jesus is. You know, our church actually teaches the Bible so you can understand it. It just blows me away that you can understand the Bible. I used to, this is my testimony, my personal testimony. I started, I sat under a person that could explain the Bible to me and I, I could finally understand it after years of not being, you know, I read it as a kid and I didn't get it. You know, I got little things but couldn't follow it. There was all this stuff in there, all this poetry and all that stuff. You can actually understand the Bible. It's so exciting. Have you ever been to church? That's a simple question. It's not threatening. It's just part of a normal conversation, right? We had a fun craft night at our church. Can I show you what we made? That would be a a great thing to be able to say to somebody. There was a cool little lesson about prayer. You know what I learned about prayer? Can I share it with you? That's a simple conversation you can have. There's all these things can lead to natural, normal conversation. That's letting your light shine in a way that's not threatening. And in our culture, Christianity is sort of threatening to people, and some people are threatening. <laughs> but you can do it in a simple way. Offer to take a neighbor's kids to Sunday school. You might be creating a pastor's wife someday. <laughs> Just simple things like that. Have you ever thought about that? Hey, can I take your child to church with me? I know you guys don't go, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a good place. There's a lot of good people there. They might say yes. Can't hurt to ask. You can use social media well. You can... Um, have a quality quality tract or, or booklet that shares the gospel and just kind of always have one with you and be ready to share that with somebody. There's all kinds of ways you can do that. Just make yourself prayerfully available to sow and to reap because you might meet someone that has a background and it might click with them and they might be at a place in their life where they're ready to hear because God ordains all things and he brings people. Nothing happens by accident. 
So he brings you into somebody's life for a purpose. So just start thinking that way. We have the greatest message in the world. Literally the greatest message in the world. So don't hold on to it. Share it. God uses us to sow and to reap. And the harvest is ripe. So offer them the greatest thing there is. Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you're, you're, we want you to let your will in everything be our food, our very food, the thing we crave, the thing we hunger for. And to do your will involves everything scripture speaks to in our lives. But most of all, most of all, making your son known. We rejoice on him, in him and we'd like you to help us to bring him to other people. So that joy can overflow and overflow and overflow and extend to many, many more people. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.